James chapter 1. The last time I had the opportunity to teach here, we studied the first eight verses from the book of James 1. And today we will be picking up in James chapter 1, verse 9. A quick recap of the first eight verses for anyone who wasn't here. The book of James was written by James, the brother of Jesus. James was known as a prayer warrior in the early church. Church history tells us that James prayed so much that he had developed camel-like knees for being on his knees praying to God. I don't know about you guys, but that's a lot of praying. I don't know if any of us could say our knees are like camels because we prayed so much to God. We learned in verse 1 that James did not esteem himself higher because he was the brother of Christ. He was willing to consider himself a slave of the Lord. James did not play the look at me, listen to me because I'm the brother of Jesus card. He saw himself as a servant of the Lord, nothing more. His heart was to serve the Lord. In verse 2, we looked at last time what it meant to count it all joy when we face various trials in our life, as we all face trials in our life. We learned the word trial is defined as a test of the performance, qualities, or suitability of someone or something. When we face trials in our life, we are being tested to see what's inside of us. We will be looking at trials and temptations again today, as the word trial is also translated as temptation. James will go into this more detail in verses 12 through 15. In verses 3 and 4, we saw where trials are here to produce patience in us and to help us to grow closer to the Lord, and how it is a refining us inside to become more like the Lord. We also studied what it meant to have patience, and we actually looked at the example of training for a marathon and the patience it takes to adequately train for one. We also learned that it's not a bad thing to ask God to give us patience because it gives us opportunities to grow towards the Lord. We saw in verses 5 through 8 that we need to seek the Lord for wisdom and ask him for it and not doubt him. And we also looked at what it looks like when someone is double-minded in their ways. Let us go ahead and pick up in verse 9. Verse 9 says, Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower fails, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. In verse 9, James transitions from talking about double-minded men to addressing the poor and the rich. We might think this is strange that James jumps from one subject right into another. However, when you're dealing with a direct person, someone who's going to tell you how it is, they make that point and move on to the next point. We learned in our last study that James was a black and white kind of guy. There was not a lot of gray area to James. He told you how it was, whether you liked it or not. And also people who are direct sometimes will go back and touch on an earlier point later in their, in their 
conversation and what they say. And James will do the same thing. He will address the rich people again in James chapter 2 and chapter 5. He introduces this as a topic because this is a point he wants to get across in this letter. He wants to address the readers of this letter and let them know this is something that's on his heart. A commentator has this to say about this verse. Though we can understand the relative poverty and riches as trials or tests of a living faith that a Christian may deal with, it nonetheless seems that James had made a sudden shift in his subject from trials and wisdom to riches and humility. And in some ways, the book of James is like the book of Proverbs as it can jump from topic to topic and back again to a previous topic. Taking, going back to verse 9, it tells us that a brother who is poor is to glory when they are exalted. To glory is to take great pride or pleasure in something. Exaltation means a feeling or state of extreme happiness. Exaltation also means the action of elevating someone in rank, power, or character. James wants the reader of this letter to know that the poor should take great pride in being happy or when they're elevated in this world. But don't forget who elevated them. It was the Lord who elevated them up. It's not what we can do. It's what the Lord does in us and through us. And when someone who is deserving is elevated, there should be great rejoicing. There's nothing wrong to rejoice with a brother who's been given a promotion or been shown favor by the Lord in their work, their actions, or their deeds. But in verse 10, James gives a warning to the rich. But in the rich, in its humilia his humiliation, because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower fails, its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. James makes it clear that the rich man should not use their riches to exalt themselves over others. So what if people have a lot of money? In God's economy, God doesn't care if we have one dollar or a trillion dollars. He doesn't look at us any differently because we have money. We are all seen the same in God's eyes. He does not favor the rich people of this earth over poor people. Because if anyone, including rich people, do not have Christ as a savior, they absolutely have nothing. They are empty. They are void. A homeless person who accepts Christ as their savior is richer than a person who has billions of dollars. The richest man on earth without Christ is poorer than a homeless man who has Christ as their savior. Many on this earth do not see it this way. However, accepting Christ as our Savior is the best investment that we can make as Christ is the only one who can save us from eternity in, the, in hell. He's the only one who bridged the gap for us to be able to make it into heaven. Nothing else. You cannot buy your way into heaven. So do not spend life chasing the American dream of health, wealth, and prosperity. Do not chase anything material on this earth because it's all going to burn someday. We read in the book of Revelation where God's going to judge the earth and he's going to burn everything on it. So everything that we chase that we think is great and mighty, 
let it go because the only thing that's going to matter is the things that we do for the kingdom pursue the things of the lord allow the lord to use you to minister and help impact their lives for the kingdom of heaven may we all be willing to do that to minister and be willing to make that kingdom impact instead of that world impact everything that we've been blessed with on this earth materially comes from the lord and he can take it away from us just in an instant we actually read an example of god taking away riches in the bible in the book of job in the book of job we read where job was blessed by god with many riches land children you name it he had the american dream of the bible satan asked god to sift job in job one because satan believed that if job had everything taken away from him he would curse god to his face because satan thought job only praised god because he was blessed financially and with everything he had we read how job responds to all the losses in job chapter 1 verses 21 and 22 and job said naked i came from my mother's womb and naked shall i return there the lord gave and the lord takes away blessed be the name of the lord and all this job did not sin nor charge god with wrong after losing everything job did not curse god job had the correct perspective on life because he recognized that everything he had had come from the lord and i pray that we all have that same heart towards everything that we've received from the lord may we not think that we are any better because of our financial position because we are all equal in god's eyes and everything that we have can be taken away in a twinkling of an eye verse 12 blessed is the man who endures temptation for when he has been approved he will receive the crown of life which the lord has promised to those who love him blessed is the man who endures temptation the word blessed here in verse 12 means happy it seems contradictory to be happy when we're facing trials and tribulations the fact that we are being tempted though should make us happy yeah i know this is crazy thinking we're insane to think that we should be happy when we're facing trials because we don't want to be tried we don't want to be tempted we don't want to be persecuted for the name of the lord but when we're tempted as a believer as christ it shows us where we're truly at with the lord in areas that he wants to still refine from us he brings that dross out of our hearts and wants to and purifies our hearts to help us to become more like him in that aspect god uses the trials we face to help purify our hearts to become more like him james does not say we will not face temptations as a believer in christ actually we will face many temptations and trials because of the fact that we believe in jesus as our savior james says blessed is the man who endures temptation and that word endure it means to suffer patiently trials and patience go hand in hand and we are called to be patient when we face a trial notice james does not say in verse 12 that it is blessed is the man who fails in temptation 
Have you found yourself facing a temptation and then you fail? And you give in to that temptation, you fail that trial that God puts in front of you? Actually, God doesn't put the trials. The enemy tempts us, but, but we fail. We're human. We make mistakes. We're not always going to get it perfect, but how do you feel after you fail that trial? If you're like me, you feel bad about it, and then you're asking God to forgive you, repenting to him, saying, Lord, please forgive me for my sins. Help me to not do it again, and we feel horrible. But think back when we face the trial and we endure that trial. Notice that there's joy and peace and freedom that we experience by saying no to the temptation we face. It is no different than what James says here when we're blessed because we endure the temptation. For when he has been approved. The word approved in King James is tried. When we accept Christ as our Savior, what happens next? Our faith gets tried. It is important that we face trials in our spiritual life because they help to develop us spiritually. They help us to grow closer to the Lord to show where we're at, like I said before. It is no different than someone who's developing their body in exercise. Someone goes out to exercise to strengthen their muscles, to become more fit. What happens if you don't go out and strengthen your body physically? You become a couch potato and you can't even get off the couch because your muscles have gotten so bad you can't even move. No different than what happens to us spiritually if we don't exercise our spiritual muscles and by reading the word of God and praying and spending time with the Lord. And as we face the trials that we face, God gives us the strength to endure the trials. Pastor Chuck Smith has this to say concerning being tested in his own personal life. Testing is a great way to learn the truth about me. It comes out in the time of trial. Again, when everything is going great, everything is running smooth, I don't know the truth about me. I don't know how I would respond in real adversity. God allows the adversity so that I could see the truth about myself and how I would respond in adversity. And when the adversity comes and I respond after the spirit, ah, man, what a joyful delight, I often say. Hey, that's not me. That's the Lord working in me because... That isn't the way I would naturally respond. And it's a joy to see God's spirit working in our lives, transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. Trials help us to see where we need to grow in our walk with Christ. And if we're not facing trials as a Christian, as a believer, are we really growing towards the Lord? Or do I dare even say, have we really truly accepted Christ as our Savior because we're not experiencing trials because we believe in Christ. At the end of verse 12, we read, he will receive a crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. At the end of our journey on this earth, those of us who have accepted Christ as a savior are promised the crown of life. The crown of life is the believer's reward for enduring trials and temptations faced in this life. Spurgeon has this to say about the crown. There is a crown for me. Then I will gird up my loins and quicken my pace since the crown is so sure to those who run with patience. Spurgeon saw this as motivation to press forward towards the Lord and to fulfill what God's called him to do. 
may we be willing to strive for that eternal crown of glory as well in our lives and press forward towards the Lord. At the end of verse 12, did you catch where it said the Lord had promised to those who love him? God wants us to endure trials we face because of our love for the Lord. We might look obedient through the trials on the outside. We might look like a Christian, come to church on Sunday, even come to church on Thursday night Bible study. But on the inside, we're in complete rebellion. We might look like a Christian, act like a Christian, talk like a Christian, but on the inside, not be a Christian. Because in our hearts, we're desiring to go play in sin and be, we could be a thousand miles from the Lord on our inside, but look the part. But God wants us to not just act the part and look the part. He wants us to yield our hearts to him. He doesn't just want lip service from us. He wants us to overcome the trials and the temptations we face because of our love for him. He wants us to not sin because... Well, step away from the sin because of the fact that we love him more than we love that sin that's been coming after us that we've been tempted to yield to in the past i desire to not fail in trials and temptations need to come from that desire to not sin against our lord and savior who died on the cross for our sins in verse 13 we read let no one say when he is tempted i am tempted by god for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desire and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives forth to sin, birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Notice God's not the one doing the tempting. Let me say that again. God is not the one tempting us to commit the sin that we commit. And I can say that confidently because I'm just like you. I'm no different. I'm a filthy, wretched sinner who's been saved by God's grace, just like the rest of us in this room. There is no person in this room that is perfect, because if we were perfect, we would be with the Lord. We would not be sitting here today. The moment we lose that perspective of being a sinner saved by God's grace, notice how quickly we look down on others who are sinning, who are struggling, who have issues, and instead of having compassion for them and for their internal residence, we look down on them like, they're not as good as me. No, don't do that. Keep that eternal perspective that we all, we all need the Lord and we all need compassion and mercy and love towards one another. God will allow us to be tempted like Job was tempted to curse God, yet... God is not the one who initiates any temptation. The enemy knows us well. He knows our strengths. He knows our weaknesses. He knows what tempts us. He knows how to push our buttons. He's had thousands of years to study our behavior, and he knows which sin is going to easily tempt each and every one of us in this room. What might tempt me might not tempt you. What might tempt you might not tempt somebody else. But he knows everything that tempts us when we get that first inkling to give into that temptation resist it say no to it because we have the power through christ to resist temptation we face 
verse 14 and 15 again. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. I want to give a word of caution here. Don't give too much credit to the enemy when he tempts us. He can tempt us, but there's not just a spiritual part to temptation. There's also a fleshly component. We have fleshly bodies. We are not been redeemed in heaven. We don't have our glorified, perfect bodies yet. Our fleshful bodies desire sin. And most of the time, due to our fallen na nature, our flesh is what tempts us to go down into temptation, not the enemy tempting us. Because we're so low on Satan's totem pole, he's got bigger fish to fry than us. Most of the time, he knows that our flesh is strong enough, if we don't put it into submission, our flesh will draw us away to do the sins that and tempt us away from following the Lord wholeheartedly. Here's a scenario that how it plays out. I'm not going to name off any detailed sins because each one of us have different things that can pull us away. And if I say one sin and you're not struggling with it, you might not think this applies to you, but this does apply to all of us. And this, here's a scenario that might play out. We have a thought that comes into our mind that causes us to be tempted to sin might be to come might whatever it may be oftentimes the temptation can be for a quick gratification of a selfish pleasure instead of waiting for God to provide for God to take care of the situation then we start thinking about that thought and dwelling on it and playing with it in our head instead of telling taking the thought captive and dismissing it as the lie as it is we then play that scenario out in our head about how good we will feel when we actually commit the sin that we've been thinking and dwelling upon. We dwell and dwell on it until it consumes our mind. It's all we think about. And we know in our minds we have no choice but to go out and commit that sin. And then we always have a choice. Even at that point, we can still choose to say no. But at that point in our minds, we think we have to commit it or else we're not going to function. Saying no to your flesh is hard, but it can be done because it's God will give you the strength to do that. But in this scenario, you actually go out and commit the sin. After you commit the sin, there is some spiritual death inside you because you said no to what God wants you to do. You disobeyed what the word of God told you to do. You took things into your own hands and you decided to fulfill that sinful desire instead of following God's plan that he's laid out for us in the Bible. And if we continue down that path of saying no to God and yes to our flesh, we will end up separated from God for eternity because God doesn't want anything unrighteous in front of him. And I'm not saying that you're going to lose your salvation because you fall into temptation and sin. But if you're repeatedly over and over and over, you'd rather give in to your flesh than give in to the Lord, you might want to take an examine of your heart to see where you're truly at with the Lord. I mean, I've had to do that myself many times, and it's like, okay, Lord, forgive me. Help me to become more like you. In a room of this size, some of you might be thinking, that just describes me because I always fail when I'm tempted to sin. Or I'm on that path because I give in to my fleshly desires. I do want to follow the Lord, yet... I always succumb. And again, I understand. I've been there. 
At one time, I was failing more than I was succeeding in my walk with the Lord. But as I kept reading and I kept seeking the Lord, I allowed him to change my heart. I'm still a work in progress. I'm not perfect. Please don't look at me for perfection. He did, God gave me a verse to help me when I face trials and temptations. I want to share this verse with you guys. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 13 and 14. Here's what these verses say. No temptation has overtaken you such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Paul tells the Corinthian church that the temptation they may face, God will give them a way of escape. I hear this verse quoted a lot by a lot of people, but I only hear verse 13 quoted. Oftentimes, people don't quote verse 14, and I truly believe these two verses go hand in hand. Verse 14 gives us our part when we face a temptation to flee from it, not to keep it hidden away, not to visit it from time to time, not to keep it like a caged pet that you go pet every once in a while, but to flee from that thing that tempts you to sin. Flee like Joseph fled the seductress in Genesis chapter 39. Victory over sin and temptation is possible. And as we obtain victory over temptations, a commentator has this to say. There is a special gift of blessedness from God to the one who says no to temptation, thereby saying yes to God. My challenge for you this week is to say no to temptations that come up in your life and yes to the Lord. And see how the Lord will help you overcome those temptations in your life when you face them. Apply 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and 14 to that temptation. Verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Why does James say to the reader to not be deceived? Because we can be deceived very easily. We can be deceived. James warns the readers to not be deceived by the enemy. And that's what he's known for. One of the things he's known for, he's known to deceive people. It's one of his characteristics. We read in 2 Corinthians 11.3, but I fear somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. The enemy can deceive us to think that falling into temptation and giving over to sin is a good thing. Even though in reality that sin is keeping us from having a true relationship with the Lord. John 10.10 tells us that the enemy is not is out there to steal, to kill, and to destroy. The sooner we re realize this truth, that the enemy is a deceiver, and we don't need to be believing the lies that he fills our heads with, the quicker we can sift through those deceptions that he puts in our path. Verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Here we read where James tells us that, the, that God is the giver of good gifts. Unlike the enemy who wants to deceive us and make us think that sin is a good thing, God desires for us to have good things in our life. This is the same God who spoke the heavens and the earth into existence in Genesis 1. 
He is the father of light and of this universe. There is no variation in what God does. God is consistent in what he says and what he does. We are told about this in other places in the Bible about God's consistency. We read in Malachi 3.6, For I am the Lord, I do not change. We also read in Hebrews 13.8 about Christ. Jesus Christ is the same, yesterday, today, and forever. The Bible is clear. God does not change. Christ is the same Christ who died for our sins. Then why do we allow the enemy to tell us that God's rules and laws do not apply to us today? We are not special. God's rules back in biblical times still apply today. Just because the world has changed what is right and what is wrong, that does not mean that God has changed what is right and what is wrong. When God calls sin, it's still sin today. It doesn't matter if it's been made popular or if the world doesn't see it as sin anymore. In God's eyes, sin is still sin. It doesn't matter what that sin may be. And... Don't let the world make you think that sin is better than God's plan for you. Verse 18. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Since the path of salvation was God's will for anyone who believes in him, he allowed his son Jesus to come to die for our sins. God was willing to give us the perfect gift of Christ, bridging that gap between us and God. And we've been made new creatures in Christ. For anyone who does believe in Christ as their Savior, we are new creations. Before we were Christians, we were once children of the enemy. But through the power of the cross and the payment of Jesus dying on that cross, we are now counted righteous in God's eyes. God did this because he desires for none of us to perish, but for all to have everlasting life. When we come to Christ and allow him to purify and cleanse us, we can testify of what God has done in us and through us. And finally, in verse 19 and 20, we read, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce righteousness of God, the righteousness of God. James is telling those who are his fellow laborers in Christ, that they need to be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Take a look at the person next to you. Notice how each one of us has two ears and one mouth. We are designed to listen more than we speak. If we were meant to talk out both sides of our face, we would have two mouths and two sets of vocal cords. Notice we only have one mouth and two ears. We are called to listen twice as much as we speak. William Barclay has this to say about this verse. It is Jesus' advice, or James' advice, that we should also be slow to anger. He is probably meeting the arguments of some that there is a place for the blazing anger of rebuke. That is undoubtedly true. The world would be a poorer place without those who blaze against the abuses and tyrannies of sin but too often this 
is made an excuse for a penitent and self-centered irritation. Often, we can make a situation worse by opening our mouths and interjecting our thoughts. I've done it many times. I know we've all done that from time to time. We learned Thursday evening from Jordan when he was teaching through Ecclesiastes that there is a time to speak and a time to listen. Before we determine it is time to speak, may we seek the Lord about what to say and how to say it in person. Say it to the person, I should say. May we not just interject our own thoughts and feelings because we want to hear ourselves talk. Because if we do, we will make that situation worse because we need to let the Lord speak and not say what's on our mind all the time. This is not the first place in the Bible that tells us the dangers of hasty speech. For the sake of time, I just want to read a few verses to you. We read in Proverbs 10:9, In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Proverbs 13:3 says, He who guides his mouth preserves his life, but he who opens wide his lips shall have destruction. Proverbs 17:28. Even a fool is counted wise when he holds his peace. When he shuts his lips, he is considered perceptive. Proverbs 29.20 Do you see a man hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than him. And finally, Ecclesiastes 5.2 Do not be rash with your mouth and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven and you on earth, therefore let your words be few. Watching what we say is not just for when we're talking to others, but also how we talk to God when we're facing a trial. Look at what Ecclesiastes 5.2 says again. Do not be rash with your mouth and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. When we have a trial occur in our life, how do we handle that trial? Honestly, if we're going to be honest, most of the time we whine, we complain, we moan and groan to God. Why, God? Why are we facing this trial? Why? Why are you making me go through this again? This is unfair. Why, God? Things never go my way. It's always, you're always against me. The whole world hates me. Everyone at church hates me. Nobody wants to talk to me. Nobody cares about me. Or whatever lie might be in your head. Normally we act like little children who just had their toy taken from them towards God instead of sitting and listening to the Lord and hearing what he has to say to us about that trial we're facing in our life at that time. God foreknew we were going to be facing that trial in our life. And he knows how to strengthen us through and help us to get through the trial. Instead of whining and complaining, let us let the Lord guide us and take care of the trial for us. I can't help but think back to the last presidential election. It was so bad, colleges had to cancel classes after the election because college students could not handle the fact that candidate did not win the presidency. But that's how the world acts these days. If things don't go their way, they act like little kids and they take their toys and stomp off and go home. But as believers in Christ, that's not how we should act. God has a plan for us. No matter what we face in our life, he has a plan for us. He will get us through those trials. We don't have to act like spoiled little kids. We can, 
trust him and ask him to give him us the strength to handle those trials his way. And when we face those trials, let us stop whining and complaining and listen to the Lord. And let's not get angry at God for facing the trial because he already knew we were going to go through it. He is allowing the trials in our life to produce patience in our lives to help us to grow closer to him. We go through these trials to be matured in Christ. May we allow God to work in our lives. And finally, verse 20, for the wrath of God does not produce the righteousness of God. The only perfect person is Christ. Us getting angry does not produce righteousness. And don't be surprised when people sin, especially those who don't believe in God. They don't have God as their compass, so why should we expect them to act like Christians when they don't even know who Christ is? David Guzik says, In the light of the nature of temptation and the goodness of God, we must take special care to be slow to wrath, because our wrath does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Our wrath almost always def simply defends or promotes our own agenda. May we not be willing to promote our own agenda with others. May our heart be focused on pleasing God with our own lives. May we not go around and be in sin sniffers in others' lives because we all can do that. We can all go into other people's lives and see what they're doing wrong and compare ourselves to them and think we're doing better than them. No, we're all sinners. We're all wretched sinners in the sight of a holy God. There's no need to compare our lives to others because we have our own walk to worry about. And don't get upset with people when they don't obey the rules that you set up for them to obey. There is a time, though, to sit down with someone to call them out when they're in blatant sin according to the word of God. But don't nitpick people because they aren't perfect. Remember, nobody on this earth is perfect. No one is perfect. In closing, let's take one more look at James 1, 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. Nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away with his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. We all face temptation in our lives. If we haven't, we will. It might happen today, tomorrow, next week, but we all will face them. When we face them, we need to endure through those trials and temptations and say no to them. And allow the word of God to help us to overcome those temptations. I challenge each and every one of you to search the scripture and find verses to help you to give, get strength when you face those trials and temptations. I have my own verses. I challenge you to find your verses that God gives you to help you when you face trials and temptations. It can be 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and 14. It could be another verse. There's a whole bunch of them that you can lean on to help you whenever you're being tried and tempted to sin. We can endure any temptation we face with God's help. Again, I don't, I challenge us to not whine, complain, or get upset with others or even God when we go through a trial. Let us seek the Lord and allow him to help us to endure the temptation. He does not want us as his children to be in bondage to sin. He wants us to experience the freedom we have in Christ. Remember, we're all on the journey here together on this earth. And we all fail from time to time. But when we do fail, let us repent 
and get back in the race as quick as possible. And one more thing. For someone who's regularly struggling with trials or temptations and they're having a hard time overcoming them, I would recommend that you guys come join us on Tuesday night at 7 p.m. for Broken Chains where you hear the Word of God taught and learn how to overcome things that you're being tempted by. If you have any questions about Broken Chains, please talk with Jordan afterwards. Broken Chains is not just a drug and alcohol ministry here at the church. It is for anyone who's struggling with temptation that has a stronghold over their life and that needs assistance to help break those strongholds in their life. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for all you've done for us today. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving us for our sins. I pray, Lord, that for anyone here today, Lord, that's here that doesn't know you, Lord, I pray, Lord, that, you, that they would give their life to you here today, Lord Jesus. I pray, Lord, that they would accept you as their Savior, Lord Jesus. I pray, Lord, for all these lessons from today's teaching, Lord Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would just help us to grow closer to you. Help us to be able to endure the trials and the temptations we may face, Lord. Lord, we love you and we praise you. And we want to serve you above all else, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for dying on the cross for our sins. And I thank you, Lord, for who you are. In your precious name, amen.